the Numinous Podcast with Carmen Spaniola. Hi there, and welcome to the Numinous Podcast, where we have interesting conversations with everyday folks about the mystery of life. I'm your host, Carmen Spaniola, joining you from the lands of the Lekwungen-speaking peoples, the Songhees and the Esquimalt First Nations, recently known as Victoria, B.C., I posted a meme a while back. If you don't follow me on Instagram, you may not know that um, most Saturdays I do a a meme train, a a meme roundup, just for some humor. Um, And I posted a meme a while back that said, if I am Googling symptoms and the treatment says mindfulness, I know there's no treatment for my condition. And I laughed, but like, for real, can't we do any better than this? It is a bit ridiculous how often mindfulness is recommended for severe um, physical and mental illness. I want to have a real conversation about this in the context of the pervasiveness of burnout and the gaslighting of the wellness industrial complex, if we can call it that. If you're a regular listener, you know we've got a beat on this. We have a clear line of sight on patriarchy and capitalism, and we've long been well aware that they are the underlying cause of burnout, as is uh, white supremacy, as is ableism, all of it. Clearly, self-help and meditation isn't enough. We need an entirely new civilization. (laughs) And yet, there is something to it, isn't there? Meditation, mindfulness. I mean, I would be awfully ignorant if I didn't recognize that a millennia-old practice probably has some merit, right? The benefits of meditation for our overall well-being and in support of our restoration of the nervous system, those benefits are clear. Um, I'm not up to date on the most recent studies, but I feel like 10, 20 years ago, a bunch came out. But regardless, the benefits are, are there experientially, if not always empirically. And here to muddle through with me on this topic today is my dear friend, Annie Bray. Annie is a longtime meditation teacher and a bodywork practitioner as a massage therapist. She's also a somatic coach and one of the guides in the Numinous Network. Annie leads monthly polyvagal theory-informed meditation sessions. An interesting thing that maybe not everyone knows about Annie is that she also studied with Joanna Macy the founder of Work That Reconnects. And we invoke Joanna Macy here as a muse in this conversation, reflecting on her spiritual leadership as a woman in later life. The topic of burnout has been up in the Spanderson household uh, since my husband has been out with that for a while. If you listened to our four-part mini-series Portrait of a Marriage, Uh, You heard us going through um, some tender conversations about that, but I'm noticing it and have noticed it certainly um, since the pandemic began, uh, but it is ever increasing. It's not like we've gotten used to living in the post-pandemic world. All of the problems that were pre-existing have gotten worse. So I think it's important that we start to name it and start to get real about what can we actually do. So Annie, what identities do you lead with? I feel like it's a little bit under revision (laughs) these days, but um, yeah, I mean, there's some really core things that are obvious that I feel like, you know, I'm a white settler woman and um, for the most part, and I'm cisgendered 
and for the most part straight and yeah like I feel like I do lead with the identity of having um British and Scottish ancestry it's a pretty big part of who I am like my relatives are fairly recent newcomers to Canada and um I'm a mother these days that feels like a very huge part of who I am and my identity um and I'm a caregiver and a space holder and a body worker those are sort of like I feel like those are ways of naming the work that I'm doing these days um and I'm a teacher and a writer you're a lot of things and I think the conversation that we're going to have, which is about um, burnout and the wellness industrial complex and how that intersects with our work and maybe our identities, that, that I, that's why I'm excited to have you on the call because I feel like uh, we just really relate and I think a lot of people do. But before we get to that, I would like to talk a little bit about your experience with the work that reconnects. Um, and your time learning from Joanna Macy. For folks who are new to it, what is the work that Reconnects about? Yeah, like, I'm so glad we're talking about this. I, I'm really, it just feels like as soon as I hear, it's sort of like, oh, great, we're invoking Joanna Macy. Like, for me, it's it's like, oh, great, I've got her at my back now. I can sort of, like, picture her. So, so Joanna Macy... Uh, is the um has brought forward this body of work which is the work that reconnects and um it's it's been sort of like an iterative body of work that's been in formation for I mean like 30 plus years I feel like it's sort of in service to a wide range of people but it sort of particularly emerged in service to activists like people who are involved in environmental and social activism the work that reconnects pulls on um, a, a few core pillars that Joanna Macy um, was immersed in. So it has a strong influence of Buddhism, particularly Tibetan Buddhism, but a fairly secular approach to Buddhism as well. And then also Joanna Macy is like a longtime scholar of systems theory. And then, you know, as well as that, she just had this longstanding participation as a grassroots activist, like particularly sort of during the like nuclear disarmament era, like the whole, like the eighties, the nuclear arms race. And so the work that reconnects, I feel like really emerged as she was seeing already the sort of like intensity of burnout that was happening for folks who were sort of putting their whole selves into activism work and who were becoming just sort of completely overwhelmed with despair and mm -hmm. and then that sort of despair becomes cyclical because the problems aren't getting any better but mm -hmm. the the people who are who are sort of most involved at the front lines are feeling so overwhelmed that they're incapacitated and frozen and then feeling like you know it just kind of begets itself and so this work kind of it was just like she I think at first she started calling it like grief and despair work mm -hmm. And it was just like bringing people together in a really, um, I would say, organic kind of way and mm -hmm. inviting folks to um, speak the truth about how they were actually feeling. 
and then mm -hmm. gradually really starting to get like a feedback loop of like, okay, this really helps. There's something really magical that's happening here where when we turn towards the pain that we're feeling and we create some space, some caring sort of contained space to acknowledge what we end up feeling is um, a sense of being seen and being met and we're able to process and digest those feelings and then use it. We become capacitated again and we feel like we can continue. Mm -hmm. you know? So, I mean, yeah. How did you meet her? Like you were a lefty green environmentalist, I guess. Yeah. So because of how I roll as like, you know, uh, a sort of highly sensitive, easily overwhelmed person. I didn't tend to find myself in frontline activism, but I, but from a very young age, like, you know, before age 10, I was really, really present to kind of what was going on in the world and was definitely like I was going on some marches and I was definitely participating in like campaigns of different kinds. Um, but I wasn't, I wasn't completely full on, like I wasn't going to like, you know, the big G7 things and like, you know, but I was, yeah, I identified as an activist and I was overwhelmed and I felt like the downer at the dinner table and I felt rejected and I felt like people um, wanted me to stay quiet and I felt really isolated and shitty to be frank. Like it was, it was not a sort of straightforward um, experience for me at all. It wasn't like I felt super positive about my beliefs. I actually felt sort of dark about it and like there was something wrong with me and I was invited, I was living on Salt Spring Island and I was invited to go uh, just by a neighbor to see this woman, Joanna Macy at the library or somewhere in Salt Spring. And it was, yeah, it was like a game changer. I guess I was probably about 22. And so, you know, it's like, yeah, she sounds interesting, let's go. And we're listening to her speak. And she's just, I mean, you know what she's like. It's just this like intense, vivid, highly present unapologetic kind of energy at the front of the room and she was already leading into elderhood at that point hmm. you know I mean that's many years ago but she wasn't a young woman even then um mm -hmm. I was in the audience and then it sort of felt as if she turned and like pinned me and like looked into my soul and was like your grief and your rage and your sorrow and all these feelings that you have are the most, most sane, like, I'm going to cry, like the most sensible and caring response. And it says something really healthy about who you are. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm just having a full body response as, you know, it was very, very helpful. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It changed my sense. Yeah. And I imagine, you know, as you're describing it, it's an experience of like a very fierce and convicted form of like a mother earth energy kind of looking at you and yeah. like saying, yes, you're right. You're seeing this clearly, you know, she really does carry quite a magnanimous um, energy in a fairly diminutive form in some ways, you know? <laughs> yeah. What's the most important thing you learned from Joanna Macy about environmental activism yeah I mean it was just a continuation of that like that moment I feel sort of there you know it was a very visceral and sort of 
sharp insight sort of moment, but then as it began to digest and then I had to sort of like apply it in going forward, it just really became clear that, I mean, it, it, I would say it took many, many years for her message to digest and for me to, to really be able to inhabit it. But the most important thing that I learned was that this quality that I've carried my whole life of caring is like great. It is really healthy. It is it is a wise, adaptive response. It's a part of what makes me human. Um, it's not to say that we don't need to build skills around how we carry that quality or how we um, bring it forward in our relationships. But it's just like at its at its core, my my just sort of like inherent desire to take care of and be taken care of is like healthy and fine mm -hmm. you know and then um from there you know a lot of I think what emerges from that is a sense of righteous indignation about what's actually going on and that that's not something that you have to uh feel ashamed about right so the work that reconnects is, it's a, as you say, it's a whole body of work and you, you could think of it as a toolkit and there's workshops that, you know, people can take who are, let's say like general public and then people who are kind of more frontline and you can become facilitate, a facilitator. And, and so there's like some very specific tools that I think are seen th throughout wellness and healing, not just the environmental movement. Um, there's a lot of crossover and certainly with um, spiritual self-help, like you say, the sort of secular Buddhism. Um, and so she has a very robust body of work. But what would you say you have learned from Joanna Macy about being a woman leader who is an elder, like a public figure as an elder and a woman steering her career, like her, her body of work? Yeah, I love this question. Um, because I feel like in a lot of ways, my connection to her across these decades, and then more recently, having studied with her more intensively, like within that was within the last 10 years, like it has stood me in such good stead, as I've um, participated in the online learning world which is, you know, comp so complex and changeable. And um, I feel like there's always been this underlying, um, like having her as one, one role model to look at because I mean, she, she predates that whole phenomenon of like online learning and online. Right. But, She's that um, whole kind of like Hollyhock, Esalen, Kripalu, yes. Omega Institute, that kind of, yeah. you know, we used to see those ads in the back of spirituality and health magazine oh or whatever, God. yoga journal, right? <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. Flashbacks. <laughs> totally. Like the traveling teacher model, yes. right? Like the person who's being invited all over the place to come and like, and offer their wisdom. And, um, but what I sort of found with her is that all, all, I mean, I don't know what, how much money she made and I don't know what her kind of uh, background livelihood reality looked like, but she definitely spoke very frankly about making this work uh, open source, you know, not copywriting it. She was very, very um, adamant that this was work that was, that she had pulled from many, many wisdom traditions, which she was 
regularly honoring. I mean, she also predates this sort of movement of um, of being sort of more mindful about issues of intersectionality and race. And but I think in her own way, she was always trying mm -hmm. <laughs> to. Um, yeah, to acknowledge and to give due respect where, you know, and she also, um, I feel like, you know, in terms of her, her career and steering her body of work, she was, there's just some way she's always maintained, I feel like a certain amount of dignity and self-regard and unapologetic, like this is who I am and has shared quite freely her stories, but there also seems to be a privacy and a sense of like, I'm also I'm I'm my own self I can keep some of myself mm. for myself mm. and I've always really appreciated that because you know she shares in her memoirs some very personal details about her marriage and her experience as a mother and a whole range of things but it never felt to me like she was um giving herself away you know right and yet her name is very it's well known and linked to the work that reconnects. You don't not know really where the, the work that reconnects comes from. Mm -hmm. um, at, and yet at the same time, you don't think Joanna Macy, public figure, like is she kind of goes with the work. There, there's like a really nice companioning between her and the work where um, she has seemed to manage to avoid the whole um you know, teacher on the pedestal and like culty dynamics as well, which is something I've appreciated about that body of work. Yeah, I have been so proximal to a number of other communities, bodies of work or communities of practice where it has felt really so problematic. And it's, I agree with you completely, like her her the way that's that she's been able to walk that line has been um yeah it's it's been impressive mm -hmm. you know and so I feel like I do carry that with me as I mean you know I feel like squarely in midlife elderhood is still on the horizon um but there's a way that without putting her on a pedestal as you say I have her in mind you know mm -hmm. I would love to talk about what many of us feel is walking that line between burnout and having a career, steering a body of work, developing a body, body of work while mm. we're doing other things. Um, and so I was just doing a little Googling and found a study by Mental Health Research Canada. And they say that 35% of Canadians are experiencing burnout at work. So that was in 2021, of course, early pandemic. Then another in 2022 found that 47% of Canadian workers feel exhausted on a typical workday. That's just a typical <laughs> steady state. I feel exhausted. And then another study in this one in 2022 found 84% of workers at Canadian organizations with 100 or more employees are suffering from career burnout, not just situational. And of those, 34% report that it's high or extreme. And then, of course, there's sectors that are even higher than that, which you would expect, like healthcare, probably teaching. I didn't see them mention that, but I bet. Um, so it's been three and a half years of this pandemic. It looks like it's here to stay unless something like truly miraculous happens, which I, hey, I would love praying for it all the time, but I think it's here to stay. 
And I'm just not really sure we have like the psycho spiritual tools to cope with this. I think things like the work, things like mindfulness, that that's, that's helpful, but, um, it just doesn't seem like it's enough. Like, and those of us who are living in late stage racialized capitalism, which is like most of the planet, we need more. (laughs) Um, So before we kind of get to the, like, what do we need or what do we have even just how resonant is this for you? Like when your client work and from your personal experience, how much do you think of this burnout is actually um, really related to ecological grief and existential despair and the kinds of things that, that Macy has been pointing at since the 80s? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, so at the root of your question is like how much of this resonate or is resonant yeah like all of it is resonant it's it's um i mean to sort of quote some of your language back to you like we're in dilemma territory <laughs> i mean like that is such a supportive and helpful phrase that i carry with me so thank you mm-hmm. but like yeah those statistics i wrote an article earlier this year for my association journal like for the massage therapist specifically i've done a couple since the pandemic started you know one was a little bit more oriented towards supporting our patients and then the most recent one was about actually mitigating burnout for ourselves while supporting increasingly distressed client loads um and I mean, I do find it to be, there are days where I feel oddly galvanized and sort of like fed by the level of dilemma. I mean, it's a strange type of energy. And then other days where it really, it, it does become like a, the despair truck parked mm-hmm. on the chest, right? Because I mean, those those statistics, I mean, are real and you can dig up more and more of them and you can look at them across the world and in different industries and and we know that in a lot of cases, um, there's, I mean, like within, let's say, the healthcare world, they're just sort of, I don't know, I think they're at kindergarten level in terms of actually acknowledging like the depth and breadth of what these problems really entail. And so they're still throwing these kind of like circa 2015 type interventions at people. Mm-hmm. And I think what's ha- so I'm working period, I'm working with a small number of one-on-one clients, which is also like, you know, tricky because that can only go so far. But my sense from the people that I'm talking to in healthcare and, and in teaching, because I'm crossing paths with them as well, um, is that those interventions make them very angry. Mm. Like when someone is feeling that depth of like, you know, you might classify it as career burnout, but what we're really dealing with is like, holy shit. Like I might- Like an existential, yeah. Yeah, what's gonna happen to my kids? What's Mm -hmm. gonna happen to my aging parents? What's gonna happen to my ability to own or not own or to rent a viable house? And this even applies to people in higher income brackets like doctors and, Mm -hmm. you know, especially younger ones who are carrying a high debt load. Like they're- Oh gosh, the debt load. Sorry. It's yeah. The, 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 like the, what if I can't work question is, is like particularly terrifying right now. Another statistic is that, um, car loan and credit card defaults are at records, record high. And I have 
so many clients wanting to talk to me about business coaching and like intuitive stuff around like, how can I build my business? And I'm like, no, it's the economy. Like you don't need more training. You don't need new branding. You don't need that course. It's not your trauma. It's the economy. Like, so the whole, like it's career burnout, but also I don't have the energy to try to hustle, to keep the roof over my head. And what I've been doing isn't working. And what if I can't keep working? Like, these are very terrifying questions. Like, what if we don't have food and housing? Like Mm -hmm. even people with, I would say, technically lots of money, those questions are just closer to the edges of our awareness than they used to be. Right. And so then you you throw in some totally outdated, almost embarrassingly um, kind of, sorry, I don't have the right word, but like you know, like inadequate, right? inadequate. superficial, mm-hmm. inadequate intervention. And you've got rage, like, boom, people are just, I mean, so, you know, and then we have people leaving their positions in mass mm-hmm. droves, which is completely understandable. Mm-hmm. So Yes, it resonates with me a lot. I think burnout, I mean, you know, I'm really interested in sort of some of the conversations, like, for example, like the Nagoskis, like, (laughs) you know, talking about like, hey, can we please take the term burnout out of like the paid work sphere and really apply it to folks who are most oppressed and who have been groomed from childhood to provide low or no pay work. Mm-hmm. And, and and can you we know, just call it patriarchy and capitalism yeah and supremacy culture let's just totally let's just name do that <laughs> yeah let's just name 100%. it yeah for yeah, sure so, so in those interventions you're a longtime meditator and you sometimes use the word meditation you sometimes use mindfulness I, I want to ask you like, let's mm. talk about the rage around those things but first what's the difference between mindfulness and meditation and like give us a sense of how you got into it, why, what your experience is and how you've stuck with it for so long. Like given what you've just said, you know, I want to move us towards, so why do you still do it? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, there's a few questions in there. So the first one I think is great. Like differentiating between mindfulness and meditation is like really important because I do think we end up sort of weirdly talking about them as if they're kind of the same thing and it's just not. And mindfulness, I mean, again, okay obviously books and books and books have been written and people are scholars of this and I'm not I'm not trying to make a definitive definition here but just in a very sort of uh, straightforward level my under my sense is that like mindfulness is a state it's a it's a state of being when I, I I would consider myself to be in a state of mindfulness or not or some on a spectrum it's not one or the other and meditation, I consider to be like a technique or a practice, a tool. It's a thing we can do. And perhaps if we're using certain kinds of meditation tools or techniques, they can be in support of mindfulness. Hmm. But, you know, and I, I can say a little bit, I mean, so mindfulness is a state, you know, the state that we're talking about is, um, it's like intentional presence like being in present in the moment and knowing we're present in the moment and mm-hmm. like uh doing things to maintain that you know and so um 
the other thing that I think that's really important to say about mindfulness is that my like growing understanding and belief is that mindfulness is an intrinsic state that arises naturally in the right conditions. Hmm. So like, it's not something that's absent and we have to go get, and then we're bad and wrong because we haven't somehow like meditated enough. Hmm. Actually meditation is a really cool thing, but a lot of times across all across history, it's really only a certain elite group of people who have time and who are even given access to the tools to meditate. And so it really is important to name that that doesn't mean all the people who had no access weren't mindful mm -hmm. or haven't had. And, and it makes so the sort of way that it naturally arises is when we're uh, adequately well met, which really makes me think of kind of attachment speak. Like, you know, it doesn't have when we're when we have attuned presence enough time from a parent, you know, it's like whatever, 30% or, you know, that whole <laughs> good enough mother Winnicott kind of um, idea, like that it doesn't have to be perfect. It's kind, I sort of see it the same way. Like if the conditions of our life are, they don't have to be perfect, but if they're adequate and we're adequately well met, we tend to just naturally begin to show up with sort of this intrinsic mindfulness that allows us to have a sense of curiosity and like to feel a bit more pro-social and connect to our environment. And then things kind of really go well from there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so I posted a meme a while ago that kind of went something like, if I'm Googling a question about my health and I see mindfulness, I know there's no treatment for my condition which just cracks me up because, you know, yeah. I, I'll go to these um, Dysautonomia International annual conferences. There'll be like 30 illustrious, you know, doctors from John Hopkins, Mayo Clinic, around the world. And they're talking about autoimmune disorder and, um, you know, postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome and all these like terrible, terrible conditions that, and then there's always one that, uh, is kind of like doing the, uh, well, in our defense, medicine doesn't really have any solutions. Like we haven't cured cancer. We still have heart disease. So the fact that we can't cure your autoimmune, like there's always kind of one that's like, here's the non like medicinal or like, here's the non-pharmacological interventions. Here's the sort of therapeutic things. And it's all mindfulness, you know, presence, walking time in nature. And like every doctor, essentially, when you ask them, so like, what's what's the treatment doc for these like very severe life altering conditions. And now we see that essentially like, oh, long COVID, as we've been saying in the Numinous Network since like spring of 2020, it's dysautonomia. Like mm -hmm. it's, you know, so when they're like, well, try mindfulness, it, you know, it's sort of like, okay, but mindfulness isn't enough. We need like wholesale mass collective and comprehensive reorganization of our society around cultures of care instead of capitalism. But since we don't have that, we have mindfulness. And so what would you say is like the value of that? How, how do you hold that now, given that probably a lot of people are very pissed when they're told like, yeah, we have mindfulness for you burnt out teacher or person suffering a life-altering disorder yeah yeah I mean like okay I have a few thoughts in response to that like 
I feel, A, I feel really grateful to have had mentors who, even before it was becoming sort of trendy to criticize like McMindfulness and commodified yoga world and like all of that. Luckily, I was crossing paths with people who were already kind of like poking at that and unraveling. So I feel like, you know, I've, I, it's not sort of new to be like, holy shit, this is not enough. Like, oh no, I've been telling people like, just meditate. And, and now I have to kind of back up, <laughs> like, like, oh, thank God, you know? So, and I mean, so there's that piece, like I've, I've had that sort of background support and affirmation that like, I'm not crazy. This stuff is not a panacea. It's mm-hmm. not fixing everything that ails us. Um, and the other piece that I think helps me as I'm, as I'm working with people and perhaps layering mindfulness based stuff in with what we're doing is, you know, you said something back there, but like, Oh, you're a long time meditator. Like how have you stayed consistent? I'm like, I haven't. (laughs) I have ADHD. I have developmental trauma. I like, have a, I, you know, I've very, a great deal of good fortune and carry a huge amount of privilege, really understand that. I've got all, you know, my challenges that I deal with too. And like my track record with meditation is sketch, you know, like it's really a mixed bag. And I, but I sort of feel like I can just name that at nearly 46 years old and say, that's one of my core qualifications at this point is like, yes, I have, essentially I have stuck with it. And I've stuck with it through long periods of depression or like fallen off the wagon, but haven't left it behind entirely would be a more Mm -hmm. accurate way of putting it. And I've stuck with it when my primary meditation um, mentor like died from a drug overdose. And I had no idea that he was actually suffering from mental illness and then had my whole underpinning of like what we're even doing kind of from underneath me. Like there's, it's it's not been like an untested relationship I feel like Mm. I've been through like multiple initiations of and you know and through participation in communities where people are abusive and call dynamics are definitely in play so I feel like I'm sort of like at this point um there's just a nuanced way that I feel like I can meet people where I'm like okay there is some tremendously valuable gifts in this lineage of paying attention and and um also there's just been so much trouble Mm -hmm. and so then I feel like it means we can we can get into a a more valuable conversation about like what would it look like to take these tools and use them as one thing amidst like you know a range of probably inadequate in you know if you Mm -hmm. tally up the tools most of us have they don't necessarily feel like enough Oh, for sure. Surely inadequate to the, you know, problems we uh, face if we're still looking at them as problems that can be solved. Right. Whereas what we know, it's a predicament. Predicaments only have responses. So what would you say are some of the best gifts of having this very real tested relationship with meditation? How do you Mm. do it differently now, even than when you started? Yeah. Well, this is where I feel like it can be really kind of like weave in our relationship a little bit because you know I mean I just name um 
for folks who don't know about how I know you or our work together, you know, like I met, I met you when I turned 40. I invited, I, I gave a, myself a session with you for my birthday present. <laughs> and, and we have a mutual friend. So we've, we do, we have a, of can, each other for a while. Mm-hmm. Exactly. We met through our mutual friend, Sarah Selecki, who, you know, just had spoken so highly of you for so long. And it just, you know, I followed, I trusted my gut and we had a session. I had no idea what to expect. And, and what came from that was like many years of me um, learning from you about, I would say, I mean, wide range of things, but really it was the piece around attachment, like understanding and beginning to make bids for and, and sort of allow secure attachment on all the levels with myself and my partnership in my friendships and in my meditation practice. And that's now where I've landed with this like sweet little gig in your network, teaching once a month where we're like, I'm able to sort of share with people how I was able to um, create some stability and coherence in my meditation practice by um, weaving the principles of secure attachment in and really, de-shaming my experience of feeling disoriented, overwhelmed, distracted, like avoidant. And, and now know that in order to come to my cushion or, or engage in any sort of like meditative practice, I need to sort of do a few pre-practices mm. in order to just acknowledge my mammal body and my need for safety and my, my fear of being alone my fear of like falling into the abyss of my unconscious <laughs> all sorts of stuff right so mm-hmm. it, it really feels like I've I've been able to experience a sense of safety which then means I can kind of get down to the like nuts and bolts of staying present with my breath for like 10 minutes or 15 minutes or however long I practice any given day and I can have the experience of like oh okay there is some value to this instead of having just sat there freaking out for <laughs> or or yeah getting pissy with yourself for thinking about something else or you know thinking about what you're going to do after this right those are like yeah. such really common things is the 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 critical voice yeah. and yeah I, and and so often I don't know like I guess drawing on my experience in the 90s with uh trying to meditate which mm-hmm. it was like just let those thoughts go just let them go by and it's like actually yeah, yeah. that thought is coming from a very particular like abandonment wound or a very particular yeah attachment need or some other kind of need um and so I really appreciate bringing that um awareness into like even before you start so okay so burnout it's a thing it's more than just our work we have these tools they're inadequate but there's like some real value there but when you're working with particularly women um who are in these sandwich years managing relationship with kids with the aging parents we've already established we all pretty much anyone listening to this show probably really needs to maintain a job just to keep up with the cost of living um there's even even the the single income household is uh, one of hustle. I can tell you that right now because I have a partner who's home with burnout, and so it's like okay, I can do this, but like 
those other responsibilities don't go away, right? So where do you even begin <laughs> to help people stay afloat when it just seems like capitalism and patriarchy have us like right where they want us, which is on the treadmill? Like, where do you start with people? So, I mean, this definitely links back to what I was saying earlier, where there's that sort of strange combined experience of of acknowledging the impossibility of the situation and the despair. I'm talking about for me. I'm not even getting to the people I work with yet. I just mean like <laughs> as I consider despair. doing this work. <laughs> and and like the, the combination of despair and also this galvanized, this sort of, and it's like I'm really hesitant to get too much towards these, like, you know, we were made for these times. I mean, like I do subscribe to that a certain amount. Like it's not that I I but I feel like we have to be careful saying those types of statements because they might land in someone's ears on a day where it's like, what the fuck are you talking about? Right. Like the, <laughs> it's, it's, but I do experience also like in the face of, of this, you know, predicament, there's like a very particular type of creativity that seems to be alive in my whole self and that I would say is only able to be there because I've kind of accessed, I've, I've like made certain decisions around how I allocate my resources, which means like we don't go on holidays very much, but we all get therapy or like whatever, right? Mm -hmm. Like we're, mm -hmm. we're doing certain things so that like there's enough bandwidth in place that the engagement can stay online and so I, I'm saying all that because I feel like it's a it's similar than what like when I begin working with either like let's say in a small group or like a one-on-one -on -one kind of situation um as much as I don't necessarily believe in some reductive nervous system model like let's just hack your nervous system so you can feel better because I don't I'm like let's just start layering in like really slowly and really steadily some like repeatable simple accessible tools as I've done with you as many people have been participating in in the network you know like let's just figure out some way that we can keep things kind of um you know whatever nostrils above water like however you want to mm -hmm. but then there's this added thing that happens is as you're doing that I think at a more deep spiritual psychic level we begin to tap into our sense of like deeper capacity and connection mm -hmm. to source mm -hmm. and then it's like oh there's maybe and I don't want to speak for everybody because I again I fully understand not everyone's feeling like this on any given day but mm -hmm. maybe it's possible that we start to feel like more powerful than we thought totally well and one of the key things here is ab about doing it together because recognizing that, oh, like you feel that way and you feel that way. And like, oh, even my practitioner feels this way, but I still trust them to, you know, have some tools, even if they're sharing that, like, they're not batting a thousand right now, you know, like there, there is something that is very settling about recognizing that we're in it together. And, you know, with all these clients and people who come to peer supervision, you know, that they, they 
are, are very frequently kind of like, maybe I should get this other training. Maybe I should get more tools. And I do this too. I've been like basically um, rewarding myself for every time I decline to take a course. <laughs> because I just, it's, because we can just keep sort of endlessly, when you're in a little bit of a freeze response, you can start endlessly kind of scrolling or scanning the world for other things you could be doing, other things, other tools you could have. But really underneath it is like, I don't want this, anything but this, this dilemma, I want something else. I want a solution. I want a problem I can solve. And what I keep telling my friends, colleagues, people in peer supervision is you don't need that certification. You know how I know? Because the most basic attuned presence is life-changing. It really is. Like it, it's very sad actually how so little can do so much for us right now. Like we're so desperately in need of validating environments that if you just can get like layer those skills of being able to be together as we sit in the shit on the cushion or wherever we are, it, it's it, like you said, there's like, suddenly there's this deeper wellspring of like, okay, well, if this is what this is, then at least I'm glad that we're all here together. And there is a little lift from that. You know, my old Quaker friend, Michael, before he died would always say like, that's what life is about is you're just looking for these little lifts, just little lifts. <laughs> and it's like, wow, it turns out that, is like oxygen for me right now. So, um, yeah, I feel like you and I really vibe on that same kind of wavelength. Yeah. That it's like, it's the, it's the together part. It's not, we're not figuring this out actually. And it, and that's like what Joanna Macy has been doing all this time. And I think her work, you know, it definitely stands the test of time and we're just kind of doing it in new ways. A hundred percent like as you were talking I was just sort of thinking also about like what an incredible elder she is because she's really still she, I mean she's not teaching a lot anymore but she's still present and showing up here and there and her work continues to iterate and to be a hundred percent responsive to this time without any attempt to sugarcoat what's happening in our world and yet somehow continues to be such a tremendous source of comfort because I mean I studied with her in Massachusetts like I don't know seven years ago or so and her message has changed since then I mean this was just before what I think it was just before Trump got in we were mm -hmm. all down there like holy shit this is probably mm -hmm. gonna happen this may happen mm -hmm. and it did and then all everything that's happened since then if you listen to some of the talks or um, recordings that she's made since then, she's very, she's, she's speaking truth to the fact that we're, we are in a time, we're in a tremendously dark time that we are requiring skills around grief and midwifing of loss. Mm. And she's not, she, she isn't saying like anything about the fact that it's all going to be okay. Right. Mm -hmm. and also it's balm for the soul to hear yeah. her speak to be and to sort of like participate in the kinds of spaces that she holds and that she's helping people learn to hold totally yeah. coherence is so stabilizing right coherence yeah. is so stabilizing and so when 
a person is like, yeah, this is not okay. It's not going to be okay. This is going to be really hard. And here's how we're going to carry this load together. Here's one way that we could think about um, being together as we muddle through. Cause you know, the sun's going to keep coming up and going down and you, you do have parents and kids that and you do still need to go to your job. Um, but here's the thing. It's all happening against this backdrop. Truth is just so stabilizing, you know? Yeah. So that, that's yeah. not to be discounted. It's not nothing. As we say around yeah. the Spanderson household, it's not nothing. It's not nothing. It's <laughs> not. And I feel like that, you know, when you were sort of asking about this, like, how do I approach working with people with burnout? It's just like, don't gaslight them. Yeah, so it shouldn't be that hard. It's, you're like, that's so sad. So little, it's so sad, but it's like that alone creates the context for people to be so grateful. I'm like, that's not really enough to be grateful for. That's just like the baseline. But you know, it is, it's like, it's a really foundational part of the work is just to be like, I see you, I hear you. It is really hard. Also just naming like so many of the people that I work with and interface with are feminized caregivers and who are also trying to learn. It's like, so we're talking about all this, like being together, we're moving through this together. I just really want to name that for some people, a huge part of their burnout is gendered, is gender related, overgiving or, you know, that they, and, and so it's like, there is some real um, friction there around sort of like the advice to say, let's all stay in this together. When I have, like, there's a whole bunch of midlife women I know who are like, get me out of here. I need to go like stay in a cabin in the woods for a year. Just totally. The emphasis on community, you know, is, is like high pressure. It's high pressure. Oh my goodness. And actually Shauna Jans has been uh, a previous guest on the show and um, great grief worker has been talking about that very openly too. Like a lot of people actually, you know, not only is community not necessarily safe, but it's just not available. It just isn't. And as you're saying, for some of us, it's like, I actually don't have capacity for the quality of presence that community members need right now. It's like my community is getting smaller and smaller because the need is greater and greater like in my, uh, within these four walls. And so it's, uh, before we came on, I'll just share, I, I was sharing with you about like my husband left a day early uh, for a visit to the in-laws. And so I literally only had 12 hours, but I finished like an entire next book proposal and was sort of doing the math in my mind about how wow, if he's staying for an extra week, I could write an entire book in that week. And I'm not even, I don't do any laundry. I don't do any cooking right now. He's home with burnout. So he's doing all of the the labor load. I haven't gone grocery shopping in months. I'm not doing that kind of stuff. But the, the amount of attention and emotional presence and tracking and just attention that's required to help people who are burnt out feel like heard, seen, cared for, attuned. There's just such a high level of care that, um, 
you know, it's, it's almost incalculable until you have, until I get this like direct feedback that it's like, oh, wow, I accomplished more in a day, 12 hours than I've been able to accomplish in six weeks, <laughs> just by having like unbroken time where I'm not responding to texts and checking in with friends and attuning to, you know, what my husband needs and what's going on with my kiddo and how are they doing? Like, you know, it's, it's a, it's a lot. Everyone's going through a lot. And the feminized labor is like so invisibilized until suddenly it's not, you don't have to do it. It's like, oh my God, this is the best. Yeah. And even then I think it takes like, I feel like it took me many years of the phenomenon of getting a couple of days to myself and feeling like a brand new human. Yeah to really start to allow myself to head on look at like what was that truly about like yeah what has been normalized here and how like unacceptable it is you know and yeah. again we're, we're back in dilemma territory like most of us are not going to get sort of like adequate solutions to this anytime quickly but it, it's similar to looking at, I mean, something as gargantuan as climate change and what we're going through collectively, you know, looking at what's going on in our own life around our personal burnout and our the relational care that we're providing, for me at least, and I find often the case with other people is like looking at it head on and naming it, it's hard, mm -hmm. but it is, it actually feels lighter load to carry when I'm calling it what it is. Yeah. And when totally. it's kind of like dogging me. Totally. So Annie, how do you cope with your own grief and rage? <laughs> I love this question. Uh, um, yeah. I mean, I feel like in a lot of ways these days, it's sort of, it's the same as like many things that I'm trying to do a good job of. It's kind of scattershot, you know, but I feel like it's worth naming that, you know, my grief and rage, which have been with me for a long time, about a lot of things. Uh, these days, it feels like some combination of um, sort of direct attuned acknowledgement, like as, you know, every day, a few times a day, like just kind of look, turning towards in a sort of parental way and acknowledging without having to fix anything, just like, yep. And then, and some containment. That's been a big one for me as a more anxiously attached person. I have tended to do a lot of like um, collapse and hope someone will help me type response to things. And, and fairly newly emergent in the last few years has been this kind of stronger, steadier, more coherent response where I can track my own grief and rage and I can name it and I can see it and I can contain it. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, like on a really nerdy practical level, I really like uh, weightlifting. Nice. And what do you like, love about that? How does that help? Like, I, I mean, I come and go with it too. I don't always manage, but I, when I'm feeling sort of like I can sustain just sort of a sensible, low key, nothing crazy, not diet industry fueled kind of weight thing. Um, it's, it's like, I was, I was telling my husband yesterday because I had lifted weights and then we walked the dog and stopped and got a coffee. And I was just noticing like, it was noisy and there were buses going by and like, and I was just like, everything was kind of like groovy. Mm. 
And I was just like, oh, I have jock brain right now. And I would like to credit Sarah Selecki with that because that is her phrase. But it was just like, you know, she was making me laugh so much. You know, when you see like hockey guys get interviewed and they're like, yeah, I played a good game. I was (laughs) just just did my best and everything was great. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I'm just a stay-at-home D-man. Yeah. So like after I lift weights, I just get a little dose of that. And I feel like I deserve that. Like, I'm just like, it's not fixing anything. It's not making the world problems go away, but it feels really good. Right. <laughs> and it just gives me like a little, and I mean, I think I build capacity too. And there's like a whole slew of things we could talk about, but I really feel like giving myself that little moment of just like, whatever those hormones are, it's really nice. Oh. I love it. I love it. And I, even just thinking of you feeling strong makes me feel strong. Right. makes me be like, okay, I want to get back to the, um, before I broke my foot, I broke my foot yeah. like a month ago, Gosh. thinking it was sprained, walked around on it for a couple months. Turns out it was broken. It's getting yeah. better now. But before that I was doing the, um, lift as much as you can, but just a couple times kind of yeah. thing. It's like, a yeah. Nassim Taleb kind of style of like, I can't remember what like the technical name is for it. And, and like moving towards wall sits, just like do it for as long as you can until you're like gasping, but it only takes two minutes. Mm-hmm. That like that feeling of like, yeah, I want to get strong. It also does help you connect with the stable structures of your own body. And so, mm-hmm. yeah, it feels really good to hear you say that. I'm like taking it all in and feeling better myself. It's a tricky one because as a person who works with people at the body level, hands-on and like in a more dialogue and sort of like, you know, uh, coachy kind of way, I, I, I really, I'm mind, I'm mindful. I'm careful about prescribing any amount of like extra work for anyone these days. I always have been careful. I'm very careful now, but like, if I could find a way to like wave my magic wand and make it doable and easy for like everyone but especially feminized midlife people to get a little like load into their tissues mm-hmm. I uh I would really love that because I do it does change things on multiple levels and I just think it's like an input that is valuable totally you know? we went to um we just got our first Costco membership in the last oh, year it kind of feels like a yeah I know it's so overwhelming <laughs> like we hate it there but we, it was like for particular business purpose with quest and then we were like okay, i got it. no this judgment is... i have one too yeah <laughs> but now we're like oh look at all the cheese here like there's just all these like food things that we kind of didn't really think about anyway we bought very heavy bags of rice for like our kind of rotate through the um um emergency supplies and so they're like sitting right there waiting for me to do the heavy load kind of stuff. So um, it makes me feel like I'm more collapse preppy when I've got this food and I'm like working on um, feeling strong in my body. Cause like yeah. what we've learned the last few years, our health is like our wealth. Right. So yeah. Uh-huh. And like important. also to just sort of bring in the perspective of ableism, like I have the ability to be strong right now and not everyone does. And if I, I, I don't mean to get all like moralistic, like I have to do it because other people, I just mean like, it's a thing that's in my purview right now. And mm-hmm. so like, if I can be strong right now, 
there could be many, many moments where that could be a value to beyond just me and my well-being, mm-hmm. you know, and that's, I think that's where it's like, you know, an exercise program. It's just brutal. It's so commodified. It's like a nightmare, the fitness world. <laughs> I ha- I feel like we could have a whole hour long conversation just about that. But like the, if you can, like, it, I don't think it's possible to extricate yourself entirely from that. Like anytime you're ex- you're exercising, in this time, if you're in a body that's, you know, where you've dieted or you've been worried about any of those things, it's going to maybe be there, little mm-hmm. bits of it. But if we can detach as much as possible and kind of bring in new reasons for why we might be engaging in those things, I feel like it's uh, it's like a reclaiming process that's really cool. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. they, it, these that just seems like such a better way than I've been coping with my grief and rage rate lately, which is just kind of being ragey. <laughs> this has been great thank you so much uh, for being on the show Annie it's always a delight to talk with you thank you Carmen I feel very honored to be talking to you today. <laughs> okay I have like a tiny little editorial note about something I said earlier I want to make that note in a second but first I'd love you to join us in the Numinous Network to try on Annie's style of meditation Um, Of course, in the show notes, you'll find links to Annie's website and her newsletter sign up so you'll know when she's offering her online group programs. And one I want to highlight is called Reorient. It's a 12-week meditation program for midlife caregivers based deeply in both the work that reconnects we were talking about as well as attachment and polyvagal theory so she's gearing up to offer it again in january i think midlife caregivers dealing with burnout should really check that out you'll find those in the show notes in your podcast player or at numinouspodcast.com and i'm so grateful to annie i just want to say it again it's such an honor to have someone like her teaching in the network if you would like a sample of her work join us in the fall because our program changes a little bit in December. I ask most of the guides to take time off. Um, Annie's on the calendar, though, for October 25th and November 22nd. So many thanks to Annie for coming on the show to share her thoughts and her experiences. So the thing I want to add, like I went on and on there for a while about not doing any domestic labor and yet feeling like I needed all this spaciousness because I have this like massive case care load. Um, And I guess, you know, I feel like I'm talking to Annie and I know Annie and I feel like I'm talking to listeners who've been listening for nine years now, but actually (laughs) there's a high chance you're very new to me and to my work. And so you may not realize that. um, So I'm the only breadwinner and I've been the primary breadwinner for over a decade. And uh, I like that. I'm an entrepreneur. I like my work and uh, my husband has, you know, done other things and both of us really ramped up our work in community care, both paid and unpaid work since the onset of the pandemic, kind of like hit our stride. Um, We just had that perfect little overlapping Venn diagram of uh, what was happening in the moment and uh, needs in our communities and our skills. Um, So I I do, though, always just kind of work really hard (laughs) and and I and I work hard most of the year and then I take a full month off in January and I can usually maintain like pretty good work-life balance after that uh, because every month I have a lightly scheduled week where I take all the time off I don't do any um, like teaching or client work 
one week a month. And I just sort of lightly schedule maybe admin. Um, and I always take Fridays off, except I schedule maybe some fun things like interviewing someone for the podcast. So I, I, I'm fairly balanced and I've had to really work at that. Uh, because for many, many years, my tendency has been to live like a camel, right? Who can just like endure, endure, endure in a feast or famine cycle of rest. And just because of some changes in our family and some additional like time sensitive, seasonally focused work stuff, my man has been doing all the domestic labor. It wasn't always this way, but now we're at the place where I can ask him like, hey, I want to lay down all the cooking for a while because I'm tethered to the computer around the clock. And um, and he's, you know, happy and willingly doing that. So even though he's burnt out, I'm not like burning him out with domestic labor. <laughs> he has total agency there. Anyway, that just maybe lacks some context for new listeners. Uh, and I sounded like I was sort of complaining about uh, being waited on hand and foot. But uh, we are dividing our labor uh, just in different ways um, and really more explicitly right now. I would love it if somebody would interview me about how I've gone from being a total workaholic to somebody that has like quite a lot of agency and balance. I, I feel like someone should have me on their podcast that like talks about, um, I don't know, like work-life balance or something. Anyway, um, okay, let's move to the listener shout out. Um, and actually, it, Many of you know, I've been doing shout outs to people who are leaving reviews for my book, The Spirited Kitchen, leaving reviews anywhere, amazon.com um, or .ca, Goodreads, anywhere else. I'm up to 67 reviews, which isn't bad, but I'm hoping to hit a hundred within a year of um, my book's publishing date. So I really want to thank uh, N Seeds, who gave five stars and titled it, loved this book, exclamation mark, N Seeds writes, from the carefully curated recipes that are all fabulous to the wonderful images that make everything come alive, this book was right up my witchy alley. Huzzah! That was perfect! Thank you for that, my friend. I so, so, so appreciate that. Finally, come join us at Witches New Year on Saturday, October 28th. Tickets are on sale now for this one-day event where we'll look at the astrology for 2024 and the tarot card of the year. Plus, we'll dive into ancestral veneration, reclaiming rest, and processing our personal and collective rage. Tickets are just $50 Canadian with a sliding scale available and registration comes with recordings. You can get all the details at CarmenSpaniola.com. C-A-R-M-E-N-S-P-A-G-N-O-L-A. Until next time, take care.